going to read the Bible uh, text this morning. It's on the sheet, if you want to read along there. Um, Titus 2, verse 11 through to 15. Uh, so let's read that together. And then Glenn, in a few moments, is going to come up and explain and, and preach God's word to us. So, Titus 2, starting at verse 11. This is God's word. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. This is God's word. Great. Glenn, do you want to come up? And um, Glenn, uh, for those of you who don't know Glenn, Glenn Wasson um, is one of our, uh, our sort of recent uh, members, additions to the family here at Foundation Church, and you were just baptized there. When was that? When did we do that? A few months ago. Easter, Easter Sunday, that's right. Um, so it's just wonderful. And uh, the, the context behind Glenn preaching today is that uh, a few months ago, I hosted a, um, a preaching workshop in my house one Saturday morning, and there was eight, eight of us that gathered uh, just to talk about how do you put a talk together and just to try and equip some of our folks with some skills on, on preparing a Bible talk. And um, a few weeks after that, I then emailed the group to say, right, we're going to go through a teaching series in Titus. Who's with me? And Glenn was one of the first ones to get back to me and uh, to put his hand up and say, oh, I'll give it a shot. And in a couple of weeks' time, we've got Andrew Wright as well, who's going to be preaching. I think Pierre's going to give it a shot. But like later on, when you're in the country, is that right? When, when the dust has settled, great to have you. These guys got married yesterday. And here they are in church. Isn't that awesome? <laughs> so, yeah. We had a great day, and um, it's great to have you here, and t- top marks for coming to church on the day after you got married. Awesome. Everyone else, take note. This is commitment right here, so <laughs> brilliant. Love it. Praise God. Yeah. <laughs> right. Anyway, I'm just going to pray with, um, with Glenn, and then we're going to open our hearts and listen to what God has to say through your preaching. Come on over here, Glenn. Father God, we thank you uh, that we can listen to your voice through the scriptures as they're read and explained to us. And so it's my prayer that as, as your people today, that we would hear your voice speaking clearly to us and you would challenge our hearts, instruct our minds, and uh, move us out on mission for Jesus. I do pray for Glenn. I pray that you would anoint him right now with your Holy Spirit. Uh, I pray that you would give him clarity on, on what lies ahead of him and the words you've placed on his heart and mind in order to bless our community. So build him up, Lord, as he builds us up with your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well... Good morning, folks. It's nice to be able to share the good old Presbyterian. Is that, were you Presbyterian? Need to say good morning back. Anyway. Anyway. No. Well, take note for future reference, folks. Anyway, it's nice to be able to share the word with you today. I do have one minor confession to make before I crack on. Uh, when I was first asked if I'd like to give this a go, you know, doing the sermon and was offered Titus to one to, well, it was one to 14 now, it's one to 15, more has been put on me now. I thought that actually shouldn't be too difficult, couple of verses, nothing overly substantial. And then I actually read them, and my thoughts quickly changed, for you see, 
these verses that you have in front of you are describing pretty briefly the way that God's grace should affect the lives of believers. So it is very important. They encourage the reader to reject ungodliness and lead a much healthier, holier, and radical life. This, of course, was in keeping with Paul's continued teaching that the profession of Christ as our saviour must be accompanied by godly loving. So you can see why it's a bit more complex than I first thought, uh, particularly with the way the passage starts. I'll get to that in a second. But the whole idea that Paul is trying to convey to Titus here is that the grace of God forms the foundation of our behavior. So what we're seeking to do today, I don't know if that's what you came here seeking, but that's what you're seeking now. What we're seeking to do today is to understand how we should live following Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. And we'll be thinking about three main things that we should be taking from this passage, mainly that we need to accept God's grace, that we need to anticipate Jesus' return in glory, and lastly, that we need to acknowledge the resurrection. And I'll go into that last point a little bit more later. So as I mentioned, that this passage is complex, and it's all because of the very first word in verse 11. And it's that pesky word for, okay, being a bit cheeky with the technical stuff here. For, in this case, doesn't necessarily mean that you're supporting the appearance of God's grace. In this case, for actually means because or since. So we're going to have to backtrack a little bit because to actually consider what God's living for God, godly living is, we need to briefly consider Titus 2, 1 to 10, to properly have an idea of how the Lord wants us to convey ourselves. Okay, verse 1 of that explains that the people of Crete needed to be taught to live according to sound doctrine. Now, another way of saying sound or translating sound in this is healthy. Okay, so what we can take from that is that the Lord is not only concerned with our spiritual health, he's also concerned with our physical well-being. So I'm going to quickly recap the different ways that Cretans, I hope I'm saying Cretans right now, not Cretans. If I do, catch me out, folks. Uh, well, how they were taught to adorn the doctrine of God as our Savior. So older men, you're taught to be sober-minded, dignified, and overall steadfast, uh, with attitudes towards faith and love as well. Older women, that doesn't necessarily apply to anyone in here. Not a single woman in here looks over the age of 35. Anyway, you're taught to be respectful and not addicted to too much wine. Younger women are instructed to be loving towards their family, self-controlled, pure, and kind to their husbands. And lastly, young men, we have it pretty simple. We're called to be self-controlled, but is it simple? We'll go into that later. So for the Cretans, it was envisaged that living this way was a representation of the advancement of God's kingdom through the church on the island of Crete. Anyway, that's the brief recap of how the Cretans were told to act. And now we're going to consider the basis of which this healthy living should be, or as Dave put it last week, this radically ordinary way of living. How was that founded? So Titus 2, when you actually look at it as a whole thing, is basically the how and why of godly living. The first 10 verses detail how we should live. Now we're going to look through verses 11 to 14 to understand why we need to live these self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. So the first thing we need to consider, or the first thing we're going to consider through this, is the theme of accepting God's grace through verses 11 and 12. In verse 11, Paul writes that the appearance of God's grace through the death and resurrection of Jesus brings salvation to all people. While Titus was instructed to teach to the church in Crete how to live in the context in which the Cretans should engage with one another, now in verse 11 that they are introduced 
to the source of this radically ordinary way of living. The source or foundation. See what I did there, folks? Yep. Okay, if we carry on. The foundation of this godly way of living is the grace of God, which has appeared to all people. Now, it sounds simple, but it is quite complex. So to understand it, we really need to consider two key questions. The first of these questions is, how has God's grace appeared? So up to this point in the chapter, Jesus hasn't been mentioned. I basically have already spoiled it. It's Jesus, uh, through Jesus, that God's grace has appeared. That doesn't necessarily mean grace wasn't around before the birth of Jesus, but it is the personification of God's grace. It's through Jesus that the personification of God's grace came. More importantly, it came on the cross when Jesus was put to death and in that moment took on himself our sin and shame. So being brief, that's how the grace of God appeared in the desire of the Lord to reconcile his people, his creations, to him through his Son. Now, more than the grace of God appearing, we read at the end of verse 11 that it brings salvation to all people. This is something we know from previous sermons that the Cretans really needed because as verse 12 of chapter 1 says, I've struggled with this all week, but the Cretan prophet Epimendes, there you go, got it, said that his people, the Cretans, were liars, evil beasts, and gluttons. Okay? So salvation being freely available to all people demonstrates to us that not only was God's grace there for the Cretans, but that extends to us now today. This is a timely message for the Cretans themselves, because as we read of their sinful nature, we get this idea that they needed to be redeemed for their iniquities through Christ. Paul had brought this message of grace before writing in Romans that normal everyday people, such as ourselves, such as everyone here, were helpless, but at the right time, Christ, God, Christ died for the ungodly. Amen. So we now know that the appearance of God's grace and salvation that comes with that are inextricably linked through Jesus and his death and resurrection. However, we still need to accept God's grace. It's there. We need to bring it in in order to live truly godly lives. So that brings me to the second of the two important questions that I mentioned earlier. And that is, how does God's grace train us to renounce, un- to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and live upright, self-controlled and godly lives? Now, I'm just going to leave that sitting, leave you in suspense while I hydrate here. If I can hydrate, yes, I can. Okay, tension cut. Well, folks, when the Lord Jesus was spending time with his disciples before ascending into heaven, he told them that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. It is in the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives that trains us to act in the way we're called to in verses 1 to 10 of chapter 2. However, I am going to annoy people, and I'm sorry, I am sorry for this, with a wee bit of semantics here, okay, because the word train, as it says in verse 12, you know, the grace of God trains us. Train is really too simple a way of conveying what the Holy Spirit accomplishes in our lives. Okay, now I'm sure you've read, and I'm sure you've been preached to before about the transforming part. Marion was praying about it. It's lovely how those things work out, about the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. But to say that it trains or teaches us doesn't really do work, or doesn't really do the work of the Holy Spirit justice. Now, when the Spirit accompanies God's grace into our lives, you can see the grace of God and the work of the Spirit acting in unison. So it's actually transforming us. It's moving us. 
There is one way that I was thinking about how to put this. Right, and I'm sure it's a way we can all relate to, and some of us a lot more than others. We're called to be children of God, right? Now, the transformative work of the Spirit is much like training a child, the work of training a child. We've all been through that training course in life called childhood. Okay, when we were wee ones, and if you get to a certain stage, like a few people I can see yourself here, sir, uh, you get to a stage where you're actually the one carrying out the training on your child. Okay, but much like our parents did for us, and much like the parents in this room do for their children, the Spirit works in us to instruct us, to encourage us, to correct us, and to discipline us. Let's be brutally honest. We didn't like the discipline side as kids, but when we came up, we understand that it is a very important thing. So the Cretans were introduced to this book. seems like a totally and completely foreign concept to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And let's be honest, we all know what they are. We've all felt the draw of them in our lives. And to live upright, godly, and critically self-controlled lives. So to do that, folks, we need to accept the grace of God into our lives and allow his transformative Holy Spirit to shape us through correction, instruction, encouragement, and discipline. Now, you're probably wondering why we need to act like this. Surely just accepting God's grace is enough. Well, folks, the work of the Spirit and the lives of the Cretans, as for us today, gives us new hearts. We are new creations, and as such, we are to view things differently from non-believers, to concentrate on living a life for God, whilst fleeing from sinful pleasures that everyday life offers us. So why do we need to act like this? Well, if we act in the way the Spirit leads and calls us to, we demonstrate the goodness of God and His grace in our lives, and we show others of the life that is available through Christ. Now on to my second point. In addition to letting the Spirit in and accepting God's grace in our lives, the Cretan church were also instructed to anticipate Jesus' return in glory. Verse 13 calls on people to wait for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Now this is a very important instruction to the Cretan church, as it is for us today for two reasons. The first being that it points directly to the ultimate plan of God and his people, or for his people rather. Verse 11 introduced this idea of the grace of God appearing to all in his creation. But now, in, I'm being hackled here. <laughs> but now in verse 13, we're told that the glory of God will appear in the future. So not only is Christ's sacrifice brought salvation to all people, but also the hope that someday we will be reunited with Christ in glory when he returns in the second coming. Now again, those who accept Christ as their God and Savior, all in one, will have that blessed hope that one day in God's perfect timing we can be with him in eternity. It's a brilliant and beautiful thing that we've been called to wait on, folks. It really is. And it definitely shows in this passage. One thing, though, I do want to point out to you, I hope you find this interesting as I did, um, that the language Paul used to show the fantastic nature of the second coming. Paul and then a ladder to the church in Thessalonica described the second coming as the Lord himself shall descend. A nice, concise, pretty straightforward way of describing the second coming, I think we can all agree. However, Paul in his letter to Titus in the Cretan church doesn't do this. He doesn't use such matter-of-fact language. Instead, he uses language which glorifies, and rightly so, the advent of the second coming, describing as our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ using words like blessed, glory, great, really elevate this idea of what's coming in the final day, Christ descending in victory. 
So you're probably asking yourself, well, why does he do this? Well, first of all, let's remember how Epimendes described the Cretan people. They're lazy, they're gluttonous, and they're liars. On the face of it, it doesn't seem that the Cretan people had open hearts towards God. Rather, the attitude attributed to them, it seems pretty clear to me that they're hard-hearted folk. So while Paul could have described the second coming very easily as Christ descending, he goes for this other language. He uses it to contrast the beauty and glory of Christ's return with the attractions the fallen world offers and the sinful pleasures which grip the lives of those people in Crete. Folks, I did a lot of reflecting on this during the week, and I think this is just a bit of advice. You're, some of you are a lot older than I am, but can I give you this piece of advice, folks? This came to me this week. It's worth remembering Paul's description of the second coming to the church in Crete as our blessed hope in Jesus next time when we feel the pull of something sinful in our lives. That way we will know that there is something greater yet to come. That leads me on well enough to the second reason that we should wait for God, namely around the question of why are we waiting? Well, to put it simply, it's what the author Tim Chesters puts as the push and pull of Christian loving. The Cretans are introduced to this idea of the thrust of the wonderful and transformative power of the Holy Spirit. Now they're called to demonstrate their hope for the glory yet to come through waiting. But folks, we demonstrate this hope through what we do while we wait. Christ, before he ascended again, or again, before he ascended the first time, he hasn't got back down yet, before he ascended, called his people to be his witnesses. So in essence, folks, waiting involves action. Now, while it doesn't necessarily say what we should do while we're waiting in terms of missionary work, Paul points this in another letter. Paul wrote to the church in Corinth that the followers of the Lord should be imitators of me, just as I am of Christ. So Paul again points directly to Christ, the personification of God's grace, as the man we should model ourselves after while we do his work. Now, you may think I'm slightly mental for telling you that you need to be like a perfect person. You might think that we can't exactly be like Christ. Well, folks, that shouldn't discourage you to emulate Christ's attitude to the Lord's work. One person, one writer, did give us another person in the Bible who we could model ourselves after, though, because obviously Christ is perfect. That's Moses, the man that Paul wrote in Hebrews, chose to be ill-treated along with the people of God rather than enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Now, folks, just... Look in your Bibles. There are plenty of examples of those that humble themselves to do the Lord's work. Humble themselves before God. This is what we're called to be like. To be mistreated by those in society while we carry out the work that the Lord is predestined for us to do. Now, I've been doing a lot of talking. I'm going to engage this here in a wee second, so prepare yourselves physically. Uh, now, just to sum up this section on waiting and working, it is important to say that waiting is very hard. Now, I have a quick question, so please just raise your hand. Uh, who here would say that they're impatient? Raise your hand. Get them up, folks. Come on, not just this. Fair enough. Good amount of people. Well, folks, I have great news for you. And it's never worried, because while we're waiting, we're called to advance the kingdom of God. We've heard a lot about being a community on mission here at Foundation Church Belfast, but there are many ways which we can contribute to the spread of the word through our community, in our workplace, and our homes should we live with non-believers. The great positive for us in doing this work, this mission work, is that we're exchanging the idols in our lives, such as constantly looking at these, 
This is a film, by the way, just in case I want to edit it as an it's page. Um, for the glory of God, as we work for a better, fuller, and richer life when the Lord returns in glory. Now, folks, we are doing well. We're on to the last point. We're on the home street, if you like. But I do have to apologize for this. It is the most complicated point because I was striving for alliteration with things that began with the letter A. The last point is that we need to acknowledge the resurrection. So what do I mean by acknowledge here? Well, I'm using the literal version of the word, which means respond, accept and respond. So in essence, what I'm saying is we need to respond to the resurrection. Titus was instructed to share with the Cretan church that Jesus' resurrection, God's grace, was successful in freeing us from sinful lives and transforming us into a gooder and purer lifestyle where we are energetic to do the Lord's work. Verse 14 illustrates this and says that Christ was the Savior who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So again, you can see at the end of this verse that doing the Lord's work is vital in our lifestyle in Christ. In this, we see the grace of God at work in our lives since the shedding of Christ's blood has cleansed us from all wickedness and ungodliness. Now, I do love coming back to this question because I think in reading this passage, it is important. And it's how does Christ's sacrifice achieve this change in our lives? Well, we need to look once again at the language that Paul uses to get a sense of the transformative work that's happened here and is still happening in the lives of believers today. Paul writes that Christ gave himself to redeem us. Now, for you history nerds like me, and I know you are out there, okay, it's compelling that Christ likens our relationship with Christ to the Old Testament, to the Old Testament usage of the word redeem. In the Old Testament, the word redeem was used to describe the transaction between a purchaser slash buyer and a slave trader. So you see Paul again glorifying the impact of Christ's sacrifice in our lives by pointing directly to the contemporary practice of slavery in Greco-Roman times. In essence, Christ is the buyer and we are the slaves in this illustration, slaves to sin in our lives. And we all know what it's like to be caught in that vice-like grip of sin. But Christ's death, if you like, paid the bill for all the debts of the Cretan sin and by extension our sin nowadays. And given that that's the case, we are called to respond in waiting. And while we're called to respond in waiting, the Cretan church are also appointed to acknowledge slash respond to the resurrection by eagerly answering the call to act differently from their previous sinful lives. So basically, just to summarize uh, what Paul describes of Christ in verse 14, you need to look at what happened when we're called to the Spirit or we're called through the Spirit in verse 12. For instance, that redemption from our wickedness is made real through our renunciation of ungodliness and worldly passions. Similarly, our purification for Christ's work is revealed in evidence of our self-control, upright and godly lives. These are the negative and positive things attributed in verse 12. So, as I've mentioned, uh, has been mentioned several times over several weeks here, uh, that self-control is very important. But just to be specific, I'm going to talk about self-control in biblical terms. And it's probably going to surprise some of you that self-control is not willing ourselves to be obedient and to avoid sinful practices 
if we think it's simply relying on ourselves, well, folks, you're just going to be uh, falling into the temptations of that threefold enemy, and that's the devil, the world, and your own flesh. All these aspects want to pull you into sin, there's no mistake about it. So to be properly self-controlled, you need to submit to the Spirit. This is the source of our self-control, and as we heard earlier on, it's one of the fruits of the Spirit. So hopefully you can see from what I'm talking about here that the Spirit here and the message of salvation and its transformative power is accompanied by God's grace through Christ Jesus. In light of this, what are we to do? Well, folks, we need to start living a particular way, as described in verses 1 to 10 and verse 12. Not to merit salvation, we can't deserve salvation, we never could. One writer described God's grace as totally inappropriate, enormous, or unreasonably enormous, and completely transforming. Therefore, we need to respond and behave in a way that demonstrates not only a zeal for good works, as we're called to, but also a thankfulness for all that Jesus has done for us. That's the true response to the grace of God, one of thankfulness and one of zealousness. So just as I bring my time up here, and I'm sure you're all thinking, you, to, to <laughs> it was going so well, to a close, uh, I wanted to recap basically how we apply the grace of God to our lives. Simply put, we need to represent the ways that we're called to act in verses 1 to 10 and verse 12 under this letter. Our theme for this series in Titus, David said over the last couple of weeks, is learn the truth and live the truth. Well, folks, the truth is that Christ died so that we may be free from the slavery of sin in our lives. We've learned that here today. We've learned that in other sermons. Now we need to respond by living the truth. We can do that by following the steps that Paul set out to the Cretans, namely accept God's grace, anticipate Jesus' return in glory, and I'll drop the acknowledge, respond to the resurrection by acting in a purified way that we're called to, by exercising self-control with the help of the Spirit in our lives. Verse 15 of this letter says, Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Now that was addressed to Titus, folks, but it equally applies to us today. There are some fellows in here, and again, they know who they are, uh, that are taking part in the E-plus course. Well, lads, we've been called to a role of great responsibility in advancing the kingdom of God. We need to approach that task eagerly, no matter how challenging it may be, in the manner that Paul says. We need to exhort, we need to teach, encourage, share, rebuke with the authority that comes with being transformed and called to discipleship through God's grace. And folks, if you're not any plus, don't think you're getting it by here, because this also applies to you. We all have the responsibility to, when we come to faith in Jesus, to carry out his work eagerly and with great zeal. So where that possibility may arise, be it in work, be it on the street, wherever it may be, if you feel the call of the Spirit, folks, share the good news of Jesus Christ. Trust the Spirit, share the word. Because you're doing the good works that God set out for you today. One last thing that I want to share with you before I close in prayer. This here, you may have seen me put it out to the side, this is a letter that I got from a former BB captain of mine who sadly passed away a few years ago. Now, I only found this on Wednesday, and it's sort of funny how things happen because I was clearing out a desk in my house, something that should have been done months ago, by the way, but anyway, that's neither here nor there. 
In this letter, he set me a challenge. And it's a challenge I want to extend to each and every one of you here today. He wrote to me, Can I challenge you to continue to grow in your knowledge of God and your love for God? He will use you in many exciting ways if you remain faithful to him and true to him as we strive to advance Christ's kingdom. Now, he was talking about a BB company there, folks. But that challenge easily applies to us here today. Folks, we're a community on mission. So can I challenge you to grow in your love for God, to live these radically ordinary lives that God's called us to, and to do this by demonstrating that we've accepted the grace, that we're anticipating Christ's return in glory, and that we're responding to the resurrection. Folks, let's pray. Father God, thank you. We thank you for your grace that comes through your Son, Jesus Christ. Praise to you for giving up your Son to rescue us from our sinful lives and directing us to a much healthier way of living through Christ. Help us with your Holy Spirit to live upright, godly, self-controlled lives, demonstrating your grace to those around us. Holy Spirit, move in our lives today. Move us to action, doing your work in the advancement of your kingdom in our community here in Belfast. Lord, we know you're with us. Strengthen us with your spirit. Open our hearts to do good works, the good works you want us to do, no matter where these need to be done. And finally, Father, be with us today as we go. Keep us safe until we meet once more next Sunday in your presence. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's give Glenn a round of applause. Thank you so much.